Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As always, a reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the board of supervisors for Santa Cruz County. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox-Bolton, CEO of The New Deal. We're proud to support so many of the inspiring leaders you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Mayor Andy Burke of Chattanooga, Tennessee, who'll be leaving office after two terms next month. We talked about some of the many challenges he faced in his eight years as mayor, from taking early strong measures to fight the pandemic, often in opposition to his own governor, and the terrorist attack on two military bases in his city that left five service members dead. Looking back at some of his accomplishments, including launching an open data initiative, establishing a successful innovation zone, and tackling racism and injustice through his Council Against Hate, we wondered if his dad might just be wrong about politics not being an honorable profession. Andy Burke, welcome to an honorable profession. I'm so glad to be with you today. It's great to see you. I, you know, we're, it's such a pivotal moment in our country and everything from COVID to the economy, the racial injustices we're facing and mayors are on the front lines of everything at once as you get set to leave office after your two terms, your eight years. I'm wondering what you think is the top priority for your city right now. Well, we have to deal with these multiple layers of, of problems that you're talking about. They've certainly been exposed during the 2020. So, so let me back up for a minute and kind of talk about where we were heading into 2020. So in January, Forbes magazine said that Chattanooga would be the number one city for new jobs last year. We had seen one of the highest wage growths in the country. There was a lot that was going right. And yet 2020, when it knocked us down, we could see all the problems that were underneath those fantastic numbers. And for us, I think there is the opportunity to provide a vision for what we want our city and country to look like going forward. So I had, I had started something called the Chattanooga Dream, and it was the idea that the American dream has been lost for so many people in this country. The statistics, everybody knows them. You know, if you were my dad's age, born in 1938, and you were looking at uh, your income when you were 30 years old, there was a 90% chance you made more than your father did at the same age. Now, if you are born uh, there's a more than a 50% chance that you will earn less than your parents did at the age of 30. And, and that's the American dream being lost. And so for us, we want to see people be able to improve their circumstance, to make more money, to be more in control of their lives. And, and Chattanooga wants to be a place where we figure that out. Um, but we need a functional federal government. We need state government that is trying to help us, not trying to restrict uh, our our powers, and then we have to have that local support to chart out this new vision of of what a community looks like in the 21st century. 
Yeah, absolutely. And obviously getting past COVID and the health, you know, where we are right now with the health and needing to stay inside and, you know, all the stuff we're doing right now is, is got to be job number one. And and I noted that you were one of the first elected officials in the South really to take action on COVID when when things started to become apparent. You you shut non-essential businesses. You've been a proponent of the mask mandate. You're in a state where that was not always the case with your governor and certainly even the federal government. So I'm, I'm curious, just looking back when COVID started, um, how that was to be a mayor at that time, particularly in a place where you were not always in sync with the other leaders around you? Well, it was tough and it, it was confusing as well because it really seemed like it was as difficult as it was, as challenging as the situation was, it was clear that we needed to take action and we needed to coordinate. And it was very confusing, honestly, to be in a situation where people weren't listening to the facts and weren't listening to the science. And therefore, what as a leader, what do you do about that? How do you how do you deal with that kind of response? And yes, we 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 tried to take action. And it seemed to me as we were going through that period of time that the number one thing that we needed to do was to change our norms so that when we came out, everybody was wearing masks. We understood that social distancing, and th- that's what we were talking about a lot. We put together a local plan. Here's how we're going to enforce this, what we're going to do coming out of it. And instead, what happened was the governor restricted any city mayor from having any power to do anything and and then said that, you know, our all of our objectives were, were going to be lost and opened up the entire city and state at the exact same time with no with no restrictions whatsoever, with no mandates. And so we we quickly became in this world where it's either shut down or it's completely open with no no restrictions. And as we've learned, that's not a realistic, that's not a realistic uh, way to, to operate. But uh, unfortunately, that's the way it looked to people. And, and the whole goal of, to me, coming out of the shutdown was to show people when they were going to be so happy to be open. Okay, now everybody put on masks, now everybody social distance, and we'll start to open things up and 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 pull together. It's one of the going to be to me one of the greatest uh, public policy failures of our lifetime that the president of the United States didn't call us to common purpose, didn't ask us to 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 look inside ourselves and to put aside all politics and to fight the virus together because we could have done so much better Obviously, lives would have been lost. Obviously, businesses would have been hurt, but it could have been less. And, you know, with 500,000 plus people having passed away, and to me, we still really don't know the true toll that this has taken on local businesses, on small businesses, on businesses owned by people of color. You know, this is something we're going to be dealing with for a long time. Absolutely. And you're right about wishing that we were could have been in a better place had we handled things differently. To that end, uh, new administration, vaccines are being rolled out. Are you feeling more optimistic? How's the vaccine rollout going in Chattanooga? Are you think we're kind of come through the other side here soon? Well, there were like 10 months where I was worried that I was the party guest that nobody wanted to invite. They were like, who who asked that guy to come to this party? Because (laughs) I would come to a meeting and people would be like, well, he's so negative. I don't. Why? Why? Who? Who asked him to to speak and say something? Because I was very 
very pessimistic for a long time. And here, as we record this in, in March of 2021, I'm really feeling very optimistic about that. Number one is, you know, we have a, we actually have an administration that's trying to make things better. I, it's yeah. so refreshing and nice <laughs> and, uh, yes. and feels like they, they want to, you know, make big strides. The second thing is they're really competent and they know what they're doing and uh, you can see it every day. And then the third thing that's most important, and, and I'm sure there are people listening who listen to this podcast who live in areas that have you know, a lot of, of Democratic uh, control and areas that have a lot of, of Republican control is, at least in our area, and you know, I come from a state where Republicans dominate most of the political discourse, the volume is really down. The, the anti-vaccine type volume uh, and talk is really down. The anti-mask talk, I mean, while it's still out there, it's just not as, as omnipresent anymore. And that makes me optimistic that just that lowering of the temperature, you know, that it's going to keep people's mind a little bit more open to the science, a little bit more open to the possibility. And while the, you know, it's terrible that not everybody has access to the vaccine, what what I see is the scarcity is certainly creating a situation where everybody wants it. You know, like can how can I get it? And that conversation all the time of have you gotten it? How can you get it? To me, it, it creates a, a momentum where lots of people are thinking about I need it, I needed to get it, I need to do that. And as the Biden administration doesn't does a good job of getting that out to more people, I'm optimistic about what's what's ready to come. Yeah, I'm I'm interested in that idea that the rhetoric is toned down a little bit. I mean, obviously, one of the other things that we're facing as a country is this kind of divided nature of ev- almost what feels like almost everything, right? You know, the sky is blue, no, the sky is green, whatever it is, it's we have to be on opposite sides. And I know that I've heard you talk about how encouraged you were by President Biden's statement that he wanted to be a president for all people, red or blue states. And I I'm, and I know that you in your mayor races, you know, one with a lot, one by a lot, a 70%, I think, reelection almost, if, uh, if not more. And so clearly you have brought together people of both parties. So both how are you feeling about the state of our country in that terms of that division? Obviously, coming off January 6th, you know, it was at a, we all had real concerns about where we were headed, still do. And then also what lessons maybe can we learn from you about how you've been able to bring people together in Chattanooga? Well, I'm really encouraged that President Biden is trying. I mean, and and that counts for something. That really does. You know, you're not going to persuade everybody. And the forces that have divided us have been at work for a long time, and they've been very successful. And so it's not like it's going to change overnight or in four years. But to have a president who is trying, who is saying the right things, who doesn't make everything about you're either for me or against me and 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 is having meetings in the Oval Office with Republicans and Democrats, asking them what they think. I, I think that's a that's good, and that doesn't mean that we can't fight for our values and stand up for what's right. And and so, at least for me, at the local level, and and when I was in the legislature, because I was a state senator before I was mayor, I've always tried to make it about the issues and not make it as personal as it as it could be. And I don't think anybody in the city would say that I don't stand up for what's right. I don't think you win election by trying to weaken and play down your values. I think you play those up 
but acknowledge, at least allow room for, for the discussion, allow room for other points of views, and allow room to say, hey, listen, you might not agree with me about issue X, let's call it something about some social issue, but, but you may agree with me about minimum wage, that we need to raise the minimum wage. And, and so let's, let's find space to, to work together. And I think that's what you're seeing, for example, right now is a lot of Republicans, because they see the overwhelming popularity of raising the minimum wage, they want to find ways to, to succeed on that. There, there are a lot of forces that, that don't in their party, but you can see from, from uh, various national politicians that they understand how popular it is. And we got to give some space you know, for, for people to, to join us and and to make things better, I, I'll say the last piece is that you know I think a lot about what binds us together as Americans, mm. and I think that the long term project for us is in a country that is that is incredibly diverse, and that that's one of our strengths. But that also now we don't operate from the same set of facts because of the right wing media and the way that they distort things. That that has a lot of division that's propagated by people who make money off of it. How do we find those common places and experiences where we can put aside partisanship and and all come together on something that may be separate and apart so that we can think of each other as as Americans and have some empathy and bond with each other? And I think that's, you know, for everybody, that's got to be part of the project over these next several years. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's, you know, we need to make sure this experiment called democracy works and <laughs> the American experiment um, is really about us all being in this together. I absolutely agree. As I mentioned at the top, you are about to finish up your second term and eight years in office as mayor. And I have some initiatives I'd love to ask you about specifically. But before I do that, I'm just curious, are there one or two things you'd point to that you are most proud of as you look back on your eight years? Well, I'm glad that we have six hours for the podcast. So I can talk. No, no, no. Why don't we start? Let's do it this way. Let's start with the ones that you want to talk about. And then if there's ones that, that, uh, that I want to add, I'll do that. That sounds fair. One of the things I want to talk about is something that New Deal has highlighted over the years, which is your radical transparency pledge and your work around open data, really an unprecedented national model for opening up public data to foster and encourage innovation around use, use of that data. So I'm kind of curious about how that came about, why you thought it was important, and how it's going. A lot of that came from New Deal, honestly. And I I was one of the initial 25 New Dealers. And, Indeed. And it was, it, it, it's been incredibly good for me, both meeting outstanding public officials from across the country. That's been great for me. But also, especially as I got started in my public service career, to hear from people who were at the forefront of public policy and to to try to take those ideas. And a number of them have been implemented both when I was at the state level and also in my uh, time as mayor. But one of them was open data. And I heard that at, at a New Deal conference. And also as part of the Obama White House, um, they they were extremely passionate about open data. And so I started reading about it. And the idea, I think, is that, at least for me, I don't want to waste one dollar. I don't want to waste one penny. And so kind of opening up our data, 
and being accountable to people for what we do, making sure they understand it, and then gaining their trust so that we can expand and do and perform our mission as well as possible. That requires openness and transparency. And then the second piece was let, let's let people in our community have the data and, and let them use it for their businesses, for their nonprofits to, to look at things. And I'll give you an example of really where this worked well is we've been out in front and open data now for these last several years. We just got started earlier than, than a lot of people. And so we had worked really hard on information about what was going on in our police department and transparency with that. So we had probably been working too hard behind the scenes and not fast enough in front of the scenes. And with the murder of George Floyd and the calls for action on systemic racism and systemic injustice in our, in our society, we put out very quickly our racial equity and policing dashboard. And it had information about interactions between people, not just like the most obvious things, but everything from how many people do we interact with a day? How many of those turn into some kind of problem where use of force is done? And then what are the, what are the numbers on our internal affairs investigations? How many complaints? What's the racial breakdown by, by officers? What's the racial breakdown by complainants? And just on and on. And then importantly, we didn't just put it out there and say, blah, you know, just plopped it out there and everybody, we, we tried to put context around it. So we hosted community forums where we had people talking about here are the numbers and here's what they mean. And here are the ones that look pretty good. And let's be honest, here's the ones that don't look so good. And here's where there's room for improvement. And I think that hopefully earns us, as I said earlier, trust of people. And we got nothing but really positive response, even though, again, to be honest, there were numbers that, that none of us wanted to, to see on there. Uh, there were some that were, that you know, we felt, okay, those look pretty good. But because I think of that honesty and transparency, it gave us some room, particularly because we were kind of out in front on that piece, gave us some room to to have a good conversation with the people we serve. That's so great. I mean, and the truth is it takes some bravery, right? To be able to be vulnerable about or open yourself up to criticism with some of those numbers. But to your point, you make, you know, you build the trust for the honesty and then it allows you to do more because you've got people behind you rather than trying to make it some kind of adversarial relationship. So I think that's fantastic. Along those lines uh, of taking what you were talking about with the police specific example, not the open data example, but the, the, hate crimes and, and other things. Another thing happened while you were mayor, which was you had terrorist attacks in your in your city, right? Five service members were killed tragically at two military bases. And in 2019, I think in part due to that experience, you launched the Council Against Hate Group. And I'm curious about what you were hoping that would accomplish and whether you think it, um, the, it had the progress you've seen it make. Yeah, so that was really important to me. And yes, we we had a terrorism attack here, a uh, assailant murdered five armed service members. It was one of the most devastating events that, that I can imagine. And, you know, still today think about those, those families and, and my time with them. And then, and it was an act of hate. It was motivated by hate. And 
And then over the course of time, particularly as what I saw in Charlottesville, you know, I was going around the, the world, actually, because Secretary Kerry had started something called um, the Strong Cities Network. And it was a group of local leaders from across the globe who were trying to combat violent extremism and to say a more inclusive and positive society that was aggressively trying to to make sure that everybody felt connected and the, the social fabric was tied together, that that was the, the way to try to combat the extremism that we see everywhere and unfortunately in our country as well. And I was spending some time with that. I was lucky enough after our terrorism attack to get involved with that group and talking to local leaders about how we do that. And one of the things that we started talking about was pulling together people from across the globe into a common council against hate. And then I said, well, if I'm going to do that across the globe, why wouldn't I do that you know, in our, local, in our city? And we pulled that together and started writing white papers about what's going on. And, and again, putting out what the numbers are, what we see in terms of the number of incidents. And then we also started putting together initiatives that would train teachers and people across the community about what do you do when you see hatred in your, in your area. We partnered with a tech company to put up a, a database where people could enter, you know, if they heard words, what did they mean and how did that, how did that affect them? And then finally, just, you know, education and speakers and, and it's been really valuable. One of the things that was interesting about that was when I stood up to say we were going to start this council against hate, it's the kind of thing that you feel like, well, people can make fun of you about that, right? Because mm-hmm. it sounds it sounds kind of corny. I am against hate. But instead, I didn't get any of that at all. What I got, especially from from leaders in the faith community, people in the faith community were the first to respond and kind of come up to me and say, we need this. We're hungry for this. We need. We want to. We want to pull together and speak out. And that that made the council against hate. I think that took it to the next level. Hmm. And what seems so important right now, obviously, right? We're still seeing these divisions and the and like you said with Charlottesville, just the rise of of extremist groups. What happened on January sixth? So, are there lessons that you think that you have found through that council in Chattanooga that we should be paying attention to nationally that that that, that might help us? Absolutely, I think you know the the way to think about this to me is that we need a proactive plan for how we deal with domestic terrorism from both a policing side, but also from a social cohesion side. So there's one piece of this that is law enforcement. And I think you're seeing that in in some of the testimony now that's in front of the the Congress about, okay, there are certain pieces that we have to, to, to put together and we can't ignore it and pretend like it doesn't exist anymore. That was the that has been a failed strategy. That's obviously important. But then we also need this social cohesion strategy that says to to people, listen, there there's lots of disillusioned people throughout our society, and they don't feel connected to things, and and it causes all kinds of problems for us. It causes violence that is not connected to domestic terror. That's certainly one of the things it does is that kind of, of 
feeling of disconnection and like you're alienated from society causes all kinds of bad things. It also causes people to join hate groups and a strategy that says we want to identify how to, to, to find people who are drifting that way to include them in society, to, to, to reach out to them and pull them back from that. that that's an, you know, this is what going on around the world. That's one of the things I learned through the Strong Cities Network. And, you know, we need to have more proactive strategies here in the U.S., like the Council Against Hate, that empower people to stop this in their hometowns. Yeah, I love that. I would like to ask you about one other initiative uh, that you undertook as mayor, which is the Innovation District in downtown Chattanooga. You were really seeking, I think, to to transform your economy there, an economy that had been very manufacturing heavy based and thinking more about how you could tap into connectedness and the, the innovation economy. Tell us about what an innovation district is and, and how that how that was going. Well, that's another New Deal initiative. And my recollection is that the first time I heard about it was my friend Bruce Katz, who wasn't my friend then and is a, a incredible thinker about cities, came to the New Deal conference that, again, there weren't many of us, and he had just finished writing his book and gave me a copy of it. And I took it home and read it. One of the things it talked about is this idea of innovation districts. And so, you know, this is more challenging in the era of COVID because I'm about to say words that are going to make people freak out because they're like, we don't do that right now. But <laughs> there's the idea that density, that density matters, that when we're close together, that those interactions that we have spark discussion and that the diversity that we have of people can lead to different viewpoints. And when you put people together and they talk to each other and debate and argue or work together or collaborate, that that's when innovation occurs and you get the spark of projects and things like that. And in a place like Chattanooga, we can't have those assets all over the place. We need to concentrate them. So we put together a plan. Uh, we got community buy-in from all over the city. And we were the first innovation district in a mid-sized city. We picked one spot, made that building the centerpiece for the innovation district, and then said, it's a five-minute walk around this building. And incredibly, all these companies and nonprofits and stuff started to to congregate in that area. And that was one of the reasons why you started to see, again, that, that wage growth that I was talking about earlier, the incredible uptick in, in the number of jobs that we had. And again, Chattanooga has the fastest, cheapest, most pervasive internet in the world, a fiber optic system that reaches everybody. So we wanted to take advantage of this. But the Innovation District you know, was part of, of, of my goal to say, listen, we need higher wage jobs that, that more people can access. And then a central tenet of it was the idea that, that we should all have access to that incredible fiber network of the community. And so two things have happened. Number one is digital equity has been at the core and so we had a number of initiatives like Tech Goes Home, which has won a bunch of awards. There was all about giving people the tools they need, how to send an email, how to apply for jobs online, how to pay your bills online. So these, these basic skills that people need, we've trained more than 4,000 people mm -hmm. in that way. And then the second piece is 
you know, we we worked hard on making sure that everybody turned on that connection that they have at their house, the gig connection that they have. And uh, six months ago, we became the first community in the country to offer ultra high speed broadband to every family with a child on free or reduced lunch at zero cost. So zero cost, 28,000 kids who are on free or reduced lunch, every family gets it at no cost. That's so fantastic. And that's going to be so important. I mean, everyone's thinking broadband during COVID, but of course we know broadband is so important post-COVID for education, for you know, working. I mean, really everything. So that's amazing yeah. that you've been able to do that. Thank you. Yeah, well, we made, that. we made a 10-year commitment. So it's not just a COVID piece. And I can't imagine at the end of 10 years that somebody's going to say, oh, no, we're going to go back to charging now. That's not the way it works. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I'd love to ask you just a couple questions, uh, Mayor, about getting into public public life in the first place. You um, grew up in Chattanooga. You're, you went out, came out to California where I'm based for college. I think you did a stint uh, with a congressman before you went to law school at the University of Chicago, but then chose to go home to Chattanooga. Kind of what was it that drove you, kind of drove your decision to, to return to Chattanooga and start your life there? Well, you know, nobody in my family was in politics. I come, my grandfather was an immigrant who came to this country and worked his way before really you had to go to law school was, you know, uh, a trainee or, you know, uh, um, apprentice for someone and became a lawyer. Then my dad was a lawyer. And my dad probably thinks that, you know, politics is for, you know, is for playing. It's not a real thing. You know, <laughs> I know that this is, an, I know this is called an honorable profession. He thinks that that lawyer is the real honorable profession. But my my dad and my grandfather, they were really focused on how to help people. So that's what their law practice did. It was not very little about representing companies or insurance you know, agencies, things like that. It was really all about solving people's problems for them. And I loved that piece of being a lawyer. But I had always been interested in politics and in government. And it felt as I did it like, well, I'm trying to help people one at a time, but there are these bigger issues. There are these systemic issues that they face, and I can't solve those from from my law office. And so I wanted to get involved in it. I enjoyed reading about it and, and learning about it. And the more involved I got in campaigns, the more that it seemed to me of like, well, these are just regular people. They're doing the best that they can. Um, there's no magic that, that they have that, that is exclusive to them. And so let, let's give this a try. And that gave me the confidence, I think, to, to make a run. And you mentioned that your first run was for state Senate. And then I read that you said out loud many times you would not, were not going to run for mayor, (laughs) but that was something you were interested in doing. What changed uh, your mind to decide that you were going to take the shot at the mayor's race? Yeah. I always take this into account whenever people say, what a person's going to do next that, that like, Hey, sometimes you just don't know. So my best friends literally were saying, you got to run for mayor. And I was, I was this person saying like, I don't want to do that job. It's hard. People get mad at you all the time. You got to raise taxes. Who wants to do things like that? Let's, you know, that doesn't sound like a, a, a prospect for the future. And I was, you know, spending part of my time in Nashville doing my state Senate job. And we had a a big spate of violence 
in our community. And I was really disappointed by the words and the actions that I saw in response to that. Mm-hmm. So I remember being in my apartment in, in Nashville and I took out my laptop and I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write an op-ed about what should happen. And I started writing it and I said to myself, everybody's telling you that you should run for mayor and you're going to write an op-ed telling the mayor what he should do about this. And that really does seem like yelling from the cheap seats when everybody's telling you to be in the play. Hmm. And so I put it down and I decided not to write the op-ed. And I started driving around thinking to myself, well, let's see, if I was mayor, I was going to do, I'd do X. And then within, within 60 days, you know, I was calling everybody I knew, lining them up for support, you know, doing all the things that we know you have to do to try to win a race. And, and so that's what, I think that's what happens. You know, we try to pull out our course. We try to think these are the things that we're going to do, but reality intervenes, you know, you get passionate about something happens that causes you to, to change your mind. And so when I became mayor, you would talk about what we did with policing and racial equity. We transformed the culture of the police department and tried to change the way we related to the community. And we did so because I thought that was a main main driver of, of violence. And that culture change has allowed the police department not to fight back when we say, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna put out some transparent numbers about how we deal with um, racial equity in our police department, because not that it's perfect, again, by no means is it that, but there's an understanding that this is kind of part of, of our of our goals of how we, we do things is to be more integrated into the community. And part of this, and I'll give you one example, over the last probably five years, I can't remember what year we started it. I, I really don't know of many other communities that did this. Every cadet who, who signs up to, to work for us does a community immersion project as part of their cadet class where they have to embed with a marginalized community member and find out what life is like from their point of view. And then they not only have to do that, but they have to report back. So we have an event at the end of the cadet class where they come out and they say, here's what I learned and report that back to to people. And the entire brass is there. We invite the community, but every member of the top level police staff is there. And that kind of changes the culture of, of what the police department is like. I love that program. I hope I mean that's a, that's one we should be sharing and spreading around the country. I'm going to make a note of that one. I want to ask another question about just about public service because I when I hear listen to you talk, I hear you use so many values words. You, you talk about inclusion and community and, and other words you've said throughout this interview. Do you, are there are there traits or, or qualities you think that are important for public service to, to think about in terms of what what makes someone successful? Um, I, I do. I think to me and and. Let me start with uh, mission. So we actually put our mission down on paper, and that is the the mission that we've used over the last eight years is to knock down the barriers that prevent people from living the life they want in our city. So most everybody who's at the top of our organization and hopefully people throughout our close to 3,000 first organization can say that uh, mission. And, And so I think that there's a piece of this that is you know, you want to be inclusive, you want to be, you want to listen, all those, 
those things. But to me, the the ultimate goal is to empower people in our community to do more things for themselves, not to win office so that you get more power, but that somehow you use whatever you're doing, whatever you have to to transfer power back so that people have more control over their lives. And, you know, I just think there's so many people in our society today who feel like there's a ceiling on, on how high they can, can, can climb that their life is controlled by the fact that, that, you know, they can't find childcare. So they have to spend X amount of time doing things, finding solutions for their kids. The credit card company is calling them and their, their life is constrained by that. Their rent is too high or they have to move so far away from work and outside the city that, that, um, you know, it, raises their gas and and they spend an hour every day in the car. And so their life feels out of control. And I'm very lucky that most things in my life, I get to, I get to decide, you know, how I want to spend my time and, and how I want to, how I want to do things. And so to me, one of the essential pieces is to, to use all those terms that we were talking about and all those values to transfer power to people so that they they can be more satisfied and happy, as opposed to just trying to accumulate power for yourself. Okay. Well, with all due respect to your father, I'm going to say that I think that that uh, that answer shows you what an honorable profession public service really is. So uh, I'll have to take that up with him separately. But um, last question, Mayor: Anything you want to share about what's next for you as you uh, transition out of out of office? Well, as I leave. I'm trying to figure out how I stay involved because as you say, I do think this is an honorable profession and I want to make sure that I can contribute to the debate. And I think we're at a a tremendous inflection point where there's a chance to get more progressive policies, but also to set things up where the values that we hold dear are more embedded in our society to try to do some things that help dismantle institutional racism, to deal with the existential threat of climate change, to, to provide some more opportunities for people to, to move up on the economic ladder instead of feeling like they're stuck. You know, whatever it is, I don't know what it's going to be, but I want to somehow contribute to that because we're, we're at an important point. We can't continue a trajectory that pulls us where the last four years pulled us. And I think that we have a lot that we can do to secure a better future for generations to come. Yeah, well, I know that whatever you choose to do, it will be impactful and it will be important. And uh, thank you for your service thus far. And I'm not going to say, you know, because it's, it's ongoing. So we're just we're taking a pause. But thank you for your service as mayor. Thank you for your involvement with New Deal, really. And thank you for joining us today. Talk about your tenure. Well, thank you, Debbie. And, and let me just say a final thank you to New Deal, because as we talked about so many of the things that have happened over the last few years for our city and also for me personally, came out a new deal. It's an organization I really value and support. I appreciate that. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, 
No tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Mm-hmm.